if the FDA sees a company or finds a company not doing something right, they'll issue a warning letter. That's a notice of violation that they're doing something wrong. Now, warning letters, really briefly, we want to avoid them because they require legal resources to respond to. They're super embarrassing. Dear person in the company name can be memorialized forever in warning letter history, and they rank really high on SEO. They also can lead to injunction. They scare away brand partners. And they also, in this day and age in the cannabis space, there's so much M&A, mergers and acquisitions, strategic alliance happening. And getting a warning letter is really the quickest way to scare away the strategic investment. You're listening to To Be Blunt, the podcast for cannabis marketers, where your host, Shada Taravi, and her guests are trailblazing the path to marketing, educating, and professionalizing cannabis. Light one up and listen up. Here's your host, Shada Taravi. Hello, and welcome back to the To Be Blunt podcast. I'm your host, Shada Tarabi, cannabis business owner and brand marketer. And I am starting today's episode by sharing my exhaustion with you. I don't know if you've ever had to shoot product photos for your website or not, but we had a big product photo shoot today. It started at 8 a.m. and we didn't finish until 4.30. I missed lunch. We were just cranking through. It was a lot. It was over 200 SKUs, over 600 different shots and angles. And all I have to say is my poor photographer is going to have a fun project editing those, but I personally cannot wait to get them up on my Restart CBD website, especially with the holidays coming up. So a lot of work, but a big reward. This has honestly been a major project on my to-do list that is almost crossed off. And once they're on the site, I will feel better. But today was a big step in accomplishing that project. So just wanted to share that. If I sound sleepy in this intro, it's because I am and will immediately be going to make myself some food and lay down after we kick this thing off. But before I do that, I want to reiterate and remind that the holidays are coming up. If you do not have your Black Friday, Small Business Saturday, Cyber Monday deals ready to go, you better get on it. If you don't have your special limited edition flavor for the season, what are you even doing? I got an email from a random CBD brand the other day that was promoting pumpkin flavored gummies. I can't say that I would be stoked to eat a pumpkin flavored gummy, but I was impressed with their capitalization and timeliness on pumpkin spice everything. So again, the time is now. Honestly, we're a bit behind as I feel like we're rolling through October, but get your creative juices going, get on it and maximize the most of this holiday season. Obviously, it's a huge time for people shopping for gifts, people shopping for themselves to get through the holidays. There's really no right or wrong time to consume cannabis. So again, get creative and take advantage of this holiday season. Now, if you tuned into last week's episode, which I honestly hope you did slash encourage you to go do before listening to this week's episode, 
then you got a great overview of the FDA, what their role is, what their rules are, why it matters to us, and some creative ways to navigate around them. And now this week's episode is equally as informative and a perfect supplement to all that information you learned last week. Now we're just going to build on top of that, get more granular, and leave you with some action items that you can implement ASAP. So joining me this week is Asa Waldstein. Asa is a 20-year dietary supplement executive who is the principal of the consulting company Supplement Advisory Group, which is a boutique group focusing on marketing risk analysis and practical marketing solutions for your web and social media. He is the founder and host of ASA's Regulatory Education Series, which is a free educational platform focusing on GMP, good manufacturing practices, compliance, enforcement trends, and marketing tips for the supplement and hemp industries. He's also a certified clinical herbalist and chairs the American Herbal Products Association's Cannabis Committee. Now, before we get to the episode, I have to add some commentary to this episode that you're about to tune into. I'm super fortunate to have gotten to share the stage with Asa multiple times as we're both frequent public speakers in the industry. So with that, I've also learned so much from him. He is such a knowledgeable individual who sincerely wants to help the industry make sense of compliance from a marketing standpoint. And today he's imparting you with that wisdom super exciting. I especially became fascinated with his warning letter Wednesday emails, where he breaks down the FDA warning letters, which if you're unfamiliar with what an FDA warning letter might be, well, we will get into that and then some in today's episode, no doubt. But high level, the FDA is known as the Food and Drug Administration, and they play a major role in regulating cannabis, specifically CBD products right now as hemp is federally legal, and that would fall under the FDA. You might have heard me in previous episodes mention the recent lobbying trip I took to DC where we were bringing up some bills that would classify CBD as a dietary supplement as well as a safe ingredient for food and beverage. Those would require FDA insight. So again, the FDA really plays a major role in the rollout and regulation of CBD and hemp-based products presently. Of course, if marijuana would be rescheduled or descheduled federally, the FDA would get involved there as well. So. Even if you're not in the hemp CBD space, I still think this is a super applicable conversation and just good knowledge to have to understand how these government regulatory bodies operate and how to work with them. So, for example, you say things like, quote, this CBD product can cure insomnia, end quote. That is something that the FDA would potentially flag as misinformation if they deemed you were enough of a risk or a violation. They would and could slap you with one of their warning letters or other penalties. And without getting into and giving away too much of the episode, Asa really helps understand and digest and explain why the FDA cares about what we say when it comes to certain medical claims or not, and the implications that that has on a social media and marketing perspective as it deals with the FTC, which is the Federal Trade Commission. Now, again, unfortunately, it gets much more nuanced and complicated than that, but this is just a brief example to set the stage. 
from what you say on your website and social media to claims made in customer testimonials and reviews. There are some serious need to know information in this episode for you. So I hope you are ready and taking notes. This conversation is so important and I'm grateful to have had the opportunity to have both Marty and now Asa on the podcast to speak about these related subjects from their extensive backgrounds because there is so much information out there that it's always great to hear from experts and learn from others so we can implement the best practices into our business for the ultimate and overall success of our business. So I hope these conversations have been informative for you and especially today listening to Asa. He really highlights some aha moments that will give you better clarity about next steps. And in the context of everything, help you understand the government's role and how we can work to remain compliant while marketing our products efficaciously. So without further ado, please join me by lighting one up and let's welcome Asa to the show. All right. Hey, Shada. Thanks so much for having me today. And I really am a fan of this podcast. So I know we've known each other for a while now. As you mentioned, we've been fellow panelists at events in the past. So yeah, I'm really just pumped to be here today. Thank you. Yeah. So let's kind of dive in. What is your background? What is kind of your breadth of experience? I know you speak a lot on obviously like the regulation and compliance from a marketing label perspective. You do work supporting both regulated marijuana brands as well as hemp and CBD brands. So I, again, know who you are, but for the listeners, for the people watching, tuning in, give us, you know, the 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 breadth of where you come from and how you ended up operating in the cannabis space. I love it. Thank you for that. So my story begins with me. I had a lot more hair on my head in the late 90s, maybe a big beard, and I followed my passion for clinical herbalism to Boulder, Colorado. So I'll make this brief, but the story begins with me being a passionate herbalist. So I came to Boulder, I studied clinical herbalism, I studied at a three-year program, and then I started making dietary supplements in 2001. So I really grew up in the dietary supplement industry. I learned the ins and outs of all these regulations that say came out, such as GMPs for dietary supplements, adverse event reporting, things like that. And around 2015 or so, I was helping run a contract manufacturing company that started using hemp extract. Hey, this is this is wonderful. So saw a lot of therapeutic benefits with a lot of our, our contract manufacturing clientele. And shortly after that, I got recruited to help run a large liposomal company called Quicksilver Scientific. They made some they make some great increased bioavailability products, high absorption, was worked with brands like Wana um, on the regulated side to help them with some of their technologies. And at that point, I got recruited to run our chair, the American Herbal Products Association's Cannabis Committee. So for those of you who may not know, APA, AHPA, is a top trade group for the dietary supplement and cannabis industry. So kind of starting at the beginning, following my passion for herbalism, dietary supplement manufacturing, and then coming into hemp cannabinoids and cannabis. So as chair of the Cannabis Committee with APA, which I still have the great honor of being chairperson of, we really work with the federal legislators on helping to shape the future of regulatory compliance for mostly the hemp cannabinoid space. So that I've been doing for about three and a half years. And a couple of years ago, Shada, I started a company called Supplement Advisory Group, and we really focus on finding online marketing risk. And then we help our clients come up with lower risk ways to talk about this. So this is in the regulated cannabis space somewhat, 
in the cannabinoid space and then the dietary supplement space as well. And part of that (laughs) is we also help companies register their hemp CBD products in states like West Virginia and Utah, which is pretty nuanced and somewhat annoying, but it's something we love doing. Thank you for that introduction. I feel like when I talk to you, I always learn something new. So I'm really excited for the listeners because you're just a wealth of information and you always speak so knowledgeably, but so openly, which is very appreciated, obviously, on the To Be Blunt show. I I really uh, value when people can speak transparently because I think that so much of our industry is shrouded in just misinformation and misunderstandings, really. And so I think, you know, to kind of tee it off, And I definitely have some other kind of, you know, personal stories and things that I want to like feed into the conversation because what you represent and the conversation that you have become an expert in helping navigate is so important. I think a lot of people don't really realize the gravity or the degree to the implications. I mean, you just mentioned like marketing, labeling, obviously dietary and supplement, the warning letters coming from the FDA. So to kind of start at the top, why do people need to be mindful of what their website, their labels, their social media is saying in regards to making claims about cannabis? Got it. Good question. I love you're right. I love talking about this stuff. We could we could talk about this all day. So the main reason why companies really need to be careful is because of what's called a warning letter, FD warning letters. I know a lot of the audience here knows what this is, but just really quick, if the FDA sees a company or finds a company not doing something right, they'll issue a warning letter. That's a notice of violation that they're doing something wrong. Now, warning letters, really briefly, we want to avoid them because they require legal resources to respond to. They're super embarrassing. Dear person in the company name can be memorialized forever in warning letter history, and they rank really high on SEO. They also can lead to injunction. They scare away brand partners. And they also, in this day and age, in the cannabis space, there's so much M&A, mergers and acquisitions, strategic alliance happening. And getting a warning letter is really the quickest way to scare away the strategic investment. And last but not least, it oftentimes leads to class action lawsuits. Companies will get warning letters. And then it can lead to uh, class action lawsuits. Plaintiff attorneys basically use this as a a rationale of wrongdoing in their their plaintiff attorney lawsuit. So really the main main reason why we want to have our marketing compliant is to avoid warning letters. But then there's also the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission. They also send out warning letters, but every once in a while, they send out an administrative complaint. This is like a warning letter with a lot of teeth. So we saw some administrative complaints come out to companies like Cushley Industries, and and I'm not denigrating anyone. This is all just public information. Administrative complaints can come with serious fines, um, you know, $40,000, $50,000, Companies are then required to return customer payments. So basically all the money they got with what the FTC considers deceptive marketing practices, they need to return to people. Yeah, those, those are... Between the FDA and FTC, those are two big reasons why we want to stay compliant. No, super helpful to kind of frame it up. Now, let's kind of open the scope a little bit. And I want to kind of understand a little bit more. Again, I understand and maybe most people in the industry understand you don't want a warning letter, right? Like that is bad for all the things that you just highlighted. But 
why is the FDA and the FTC even involved, right? Like, why do we as operators need to even be fearful or mindful or cautious over what we say? Why do these organizations have a say in our business? I just want to hear from your perspective and to kind of level set it, why we even need to pay attention to what these organizations are saying or why they care. Yes, indeed. So the FDA handles or oversees manufacturing and labeling of things that we ingest. They're the Food and Drug Administration. So they hire, they handle lots of lots of things, more than what we ingest. But for the purpose of this conversation, we'll, we'll think about things that we ingest or we put on our body. So they oversee how companies are making it and then labeling it. But in this day and age, especially in digital marketing, everything's an extension of labels. So the FDA's purview starts where when companies make a product all the way to they label it, but then that extends to how they're marketing. Because again, mar- all marketing is an extension of the label. The FTC, really the Federal Trade Commission, they just oversee advertising practices. Are you making a claim which, which can be backed by science? So I like to use this example when I differentiate the FDA and FTC. Let's say that there is great randomly controlled clinical trials on a cannabis product for COVID. How about this example? Well, as long as this is backed by sound science called competent and reliable scientific evidence, CARS, then the FTC would say, oh, you've got, potentially you've got the information to back up this, this claim. Well, the FDA would say, I don't care if you've got all the science in the world, you're crossing over from a disease, from a dietary supplement claim or a cosmetic claim into a disease claim category. So even if we have all the data to back it up, the FDA doesn't allow us to make this statement. Okay, super helpful to outline because yes, I think like we, I'll speak for, you know, the audience, right? I think we understand the FDA or the FTC's role, but how it interacts with hemp, CBD, cannabinoids, regulated cannabis, it's obviously very murky. It's like, I know I can't make a claim saying, oh, my product is going to cure cancer, for example. Or I think a big one that we saw a lot during COVID was CBD with CBG is going to help, you know, ward off COVID symptoms. And so it's like, I think most people hopefully listening know that those are like big things that you cannot say. And obviously the implications then are you're going to potentially get on the radar of the FDA or the FTC. And I think another observation that I've made, and I'd be curious, you know, kind of a two-part question. One, when I've seen some of these warning letters, it's not just like a big brand name. It's like I think people's assumption is like, oh, I'm so small, nobody's going to get me. And then I've also seen some where they are smaller brands. I've even seen an Austin company get flagged, and I'm based here in Austin, as you and the listeners know. So I think when I started seeing that kind of unravel, it definitely you know made the hair on the back of my neck perk up a little bit because it's like, oh, there's no rhyme or reason for how these organizations are Enforcing is probably the best word I'll use. And I was talking to somebody else and they were talking about, you know, thinking of how Google has like Google alerts for if I want to look at my business name or have a Google alert for myself, like the FDA and the FTC similarly have much more intricate solutions to be scouring the internet. And obviously we do the hard work by putting our content up there on Instagram, Facebook, Google, YouTube, insert, whatever. We're using hashtags, we're writing captions. It's just ripe for these agencies to be crawling. And so I'm curious, 
kind of, is that observation correct that it's kind of fair game for everybody? And then kind of the secondary part to that is on these warning letters, you know, again, we know we can't make over overzealous like medical claims, but I mean, some of these warning letters have come for things that I think people just wouldn't really realize are breaking. I don't, is, I don't know if it's breaking the law, right? It's just they're speaking out of term and that I guess is breaking the law. So I'm curious who these warning letters really are going to, who do the FTC and FDA really look for? And then on the brand side, what is kind of the, I know it's like a big question, but like what is the breadth of things that are maybe not traditional, like medical claims that they're also looking for that brands and operators need to be conscious and considerate about? Yes, I love that. So it's a complex question, but we, but there's a lot of great information here. So let's, let's kind of, let's review this. So first off, if a company is marketing their products online, that includes social media, they are on the FDA's radar. To your point, very small companies get warning letters. In fact, I, as you mentioned on the onset, I write a weekly post called Warning Letter Wednesday. I stayed up very late last night writing Warning Letter Wednesday. There was a company, a dietary supplement company that was from the East Coast, kind of a groovy herbalist-owned farmer-type company that then made a cough syrup. Well, this company is the epitome of small, tiny, tiny, really small company. Well, they received a warning letter for making implied COVID claims uh, about their product. Now, they weren't coming out and saying that our product treats COVID, but they were using COVID hashtags and a social media post. So context matters. So if you're marketing products online, you're on the FDA's radar. I haven't verified this, but the FDA and FTC, they likely use a keyword search algorithm. They might type in cannabis, hemp, CBD, cancer, Alzheimer's. I'm just picking high-risk words. And then if they find that on a website, they will likely keep digging deeper and deeper. So really, the number, this number one best thing that companies can do to mitigate risk is remove high-risk buzzwords. And so looking at enforcement and kind of why some companies get into trouble, where the, well, the FDA and FTC, they really look at the 10,000-foot view of a company's online persona. So one claim let's say, hashtag anxiety, probably not going to get a warning letter. But when that same hashtag is combined with maybe a claim made in a blog, a claim made in a video, an ingredient description, something like that, a TikTok video, the authorities, they really piece them all together for one big picture of noncompliance. And they, and they like to make examples out of companies data and comp in areas that are, they're not in areas that they want to focus on. So for example, lately they've been focusing on social media, anxiety and depression together, claims made in blogs. So that's one of the great things about following enforcement trends, which is by, by saying, oh yeah, the FDA has been focusing on CBD and animal related claims a lot. I should really make sure that all my CBD and animal related statements are very clean. So kind of following enforcement trends and then adapting, adapting accordingly. And then on the context question, really, I think a lot of these companies, they, they may not know that they're, they're crossing the line. So I know a lot of the listeners out there are saying, I, of course, companies shouldn't be making claims about depression and COVID with their can cannabis products or their hemp cannabinoid product. And I agree, but I bet that a lot of these companies don't know that they're inadvertently crossing the line. So the hashtag is a great example. And here's a really interesting data point because I'm a data geek. So <laughs> CBD-related CBD warning letters are actually up 
350% this year over all of last year. And we're only at October. And this is FDA warning letters. So of these warning letters, of these warning letters this year, 33% mentioned claims related to animals. That's a lot. 45% mentioned claims in blogs. So this really shows that the FDA is paying close attention to claims made on these platforms or about these type of products. But so back to my point is that companies may not know that by talking about cannabis and a study of Alzheimer's in their blog on their commercial website where they're selling a product, that's considered an implied claim. Um, I'm using the hashtag example a lot, but that's top of mind for the FDA. They may not, companies may not realize that by putting a YouTube video, linking a YouTube channel to their commercial website, they're responsible for all the claims in the YouTube video. So this is, this kind of demonstrates how companies are probably, they want to do things right, but they may not just know the rules about how these disease claims could inadvertently slip by. And it happens all the time, especially in blogs. Yeah, it's so hard to keep track of. I mean, two kind of follow-up points come to mind. One, I want to kind of, you know, ask point blank. I heard even testimonials. So you're talking about obviously like a blog. Yes, that's on my website. I'm writing the content, obviously my label, my social media, the context using hashtags. But I was recently discovering testimonials. So even when a customer makes a anecdotal but personal, you know, testimony saying this product, and it could even be as harmless as, you know, I got better sleep tonight versus this actually, you know, cured my insomnia, it would be treated the same. And so I heard that testimonials even we can't obviously use on our website because we're liable for what the what the consumer is saying in that testimonial. Is that accurate from your observation? Yes. And let's break down testimonials a little bit. If a company website is is using true third-party user-generated, non-compensated, non-curated content. It's coming through on a platform such as Trustpilot. Now, the authorities, they've been pretty hands-off with that. I haven't seen really any enforcement unless, <laughs> this is the big unless or the big but, is if a company then engages with them. So let's say these product reviews are coming through, these testimonials are coming through, and then someone writes, hey, I tried... ASA's CBD product and work great for my insomnia. If I, as the company, then commented on that on my website, that's considered endorsing it. There was actually a CBD-related warning letter a couple months ago on this. I was really excited when I saw it. Yes, it proves the point that their authority is a bit hands-off unless you engage with it. So they're, they're engaging, hey, thanks so much for that comment. That's considered substantiation of it. Now, if a company then took that same testimonial for the product review, I use these words often interchangeably and then copied it onto socials, used it to showcase, showcase on the product page. The more light they shine on it, the more attention they pay to it, more likely it is to be considered a marketing claim. So third-party generated content, authorities have been pretty hands-off up to, up to now. Uh, but then the more attention I pay to that, I'm using that on a carousel on my homepage, something like that. That's considered a marketing claim. My brain is exploding because I think, you know, when you and I, just from being connected and, and speaking publicly together and then having our preliminary conversation, like I said, I'm always learning something new. But I also like to pride myself on being close to the pulse on what's going on in the industry. But, you know, without falling on the sword, I think it's very difficult for us to maintain 100% compliance in this regard. Not that 
I don't want to be compliant. It's just one very difficult, I think, for brands to understand the degree of, you know, connection or separation, right? It's like, okay, maybe I know, again, I shouldn't say this will cure cancer, but how am I supposed to know if a customer says that and then I engage with that or maybe I use it in social media that is going to potentially be a course for action? And then the second thing that comes to mind, which is kind of how you and I re-engage to get set up for the podcast, you know, we were going through payment merchant processors. We are as a, as a CBD brand looking for a new uh, provider because the industry is very tumultuous. And, you know, current provider says I can sell my products, but I can't sell paraphernalia or I can do my products, but I can't do subscriptions. And you're like, the hell? That doesn't make any sense. Like, if you let me sell, you know, the flower, why can't I sell the device to smoke the flower? And so anyways, we were finding a new processor because that was a pain point that we were experiencing, just generally navigating the industry, trying to find, you know, providers who are going to support what we want to operate and sell in the industry. And this new payment processor was like, hey, you can't say your personal testimony on your About Me page. And it was something to the effect of, you know, when RX failed me, I pursued cannabis, which is the truth for me. You know, I was in my car accident. I I was prescribed opioids, steroid injections, and I made a personal choice to get off opioids and steroid injections and to put myself on cannabis. But even the act of me kind of tangentially telling that story became a flag for this processor. And then it became a snowball effect where they were like, Oh, you also can't say this word. You can't say that word. But they weren't even medical words. Like, I think one of the more shocking words that came to mind was I couldn't say the word psychotropic or psychoactive. And this is in regards to psychoactive products like Delta 8, Delta 9 THC. And so for me as a marketer, as a business owner, as someone who's also steeped in this industry, I'm like, one, obviously, I want my customers to know what they're buying. I don't want a customer to not be prepared for a psychotropic experience or effect. Two, that's such a, that's not, is that a medical word, right? Like I understand it's an effect, but is that a medical word? I'm not making a medical claim. I thought that I was being very factual. And so anyways, it just became a thing where there's no rule book for, you know, these are words that you can say, or these are things you can't say. And that's where I think it's really hard to kind of loop it back around for operators. Yes, you exist. People should contact you. They should do business with you. You're keeping your ear to the pulse of this. But how do regular people know, oh, this word is going to piss off the FDA? And so kind of how do, how do they expect us to abide by rules that we don't even know are rules to play the game, right? Yeah. That's, you, and you bring up some really interesting points here, Shada. So when we're looking at the regulating bodies, FDA, FTC, you know, I oftentimes look to dietary supplement regs. We have years and years of case law and things that we can we can refer back to. But in lieu of clear FDA guidance on hemp cannabinoids in particular, we have credit card processors kind of coming up with their own rules. So in this in this gray gray area where we're waiting for clear federal guidance. We have states coming up with their own regs. We have credit card processors coming up with their own regs that you're right. It doesn't make any sense why the word psychotropic or your, your, uh, about me page, which wouldn't say, and that's why this is better than drugs. I mean, it sounds based on what you described, it sounds very low risk. I would never think any of these would attract a warning letter, but the fact that it attracted attention from a credit card pro or a processor 
really is too bad to put it to put it mildly. So how do we how do we stay up on this? Well, you know, I mentioned Warning Letter Wednesday, a post that I write each week to labor regulatory love, just like your podcast, right? We do these do these programs because we love it and we love educating. So Warning Letter Wednesday is a great one. I also have a YouTube video channel. ACES Regulatory Education Series, where I just review interesting regulatory hints. There's not a great resource for here's what you can say, here's what you can't say, other than trying to stay away from disease claims. So I made a video on my YouTube, it's one minute, and it it rolls out some some helpful hints, such as words ending in itis, I-T-I-S, means inflammation of, anything a drug is indicated for, such as an Xanax is indicated for anxiety. Anxiety would be the claim. Just kind of coming up with these parameters for marketing, I think, is a good is a good starting point. But yeah, to to what you said, there's no great all encompassing rule that says you can say this or you can't say this. And then it's further complicated by um, you know credit card processors or states coming up with their own their own twist on what they think the regulations are. Quick break to say thank you to Restart CBD for sponsoring this podcast. Restart CBD is a brand my sisters and I founded in our hometown in Austin, Texas. We operate a retail location as well as an e-commerce store, and you can browse our wide range of CBD products at restartcbd.com. Again, thank you to Restart for allowing me the time and resources to put on To Be Blunt. I hope you'll check them out for your CBD needs. Let's go back to the episode. Yeah, it's very overwhelming and daunting. And again, kind of going back to some of the early points, earlier points you were making, right? I think a lot of people think, oh, this isn't going to be flagged by my business. Like, oh, I'm just, you know, a small operator. I didn't intend to say those things. Maybe, you know, like you said earlier, they say it once. Maybe the regulation bodies look the other way. But the more you say it, the more that they can see that you're kind of, you know, driving content around it. It's like, actually, you're kind of intentionally doing this. But it is so scary knowing that, you know, at any moment the FDA could or the FTC could give you a warning letter. You were mentioning some stats earlier as well about you know, kind of the percentage of how many warning letters have gone out. I think I see fractions of it again, trying to keep up, but I want to understand a little bit from your perspective, like how many warning, like, is there a rhyme or reason to the warning letters? Is there like you were saying there's more this year than that last year? Is there a cap on it? Like, do they come out every week? Like, do people need to be like, oh, I'm not in it this week. Great. I, I live another day. And then it's like, okay, next week, is the letter going to come to me or not? Like, or is it very sporadic? And I think that probably makes it more scary where it's like you just don't know when something is going to flag and if you'll be the recipient of it, right? Yeah, I love that. So after the Oregon State COVID study came out in January or whenever it was earlier this year, I said publicly and to myself and to my, my wife and daughter, there's going to be a lot of warning letters that come out come out with this because it had to do with cannabinoids and blocking COVID going into the cell. And it was pretty decent int- introductory study. So yeah, that was no surprise that there were going to be a lot of companies using this, profiteering off this research for their own products. So that was, that was kind of expected. Companies make claims about COVID. 
in cannabis, it's the FDA and FTC, they're always going to be screening for this. Now, if a company then, so there is rhyme or reason when it comes to high-risk things that are always top of mind for the FDA. So we're going to think about COVID, Alzheimer's, anxiety, depression claims. Um, you know, these are always kind of top of mind. But to answer one of your questions or one of your comments, the warning letters just come out sporadically. They come out through the week. Most of them are posted on Tuesday afternoon, but they can come out at any time. So companies should really take a preventative approach, of course, right? Scan their old social media posts, scan their blogs to make sure that these high-risk words aren't lurking, lurking in, in anywhere because the FDA could be thinking about something else. So I mentioned CBD and animal claims. The FDA could be looking at the, at a company's website now and saying, oh, you're selling CBD uh, for animals. I'm really going to look deep at that now. There's kind of these sub-enforcement trends that are kind of beyond the, the keywords that they always look for, again, COVID, depression, things like that. On the subject of, you know, research and studies, kind of a two-part question. One, you know, I've started noticing that there are, for example, like a study that might be done that says, CBD or insert whatever cannabinoid could be good for XYZ. These are preliminary trials. Do I have any protection because there is a study that's done from a medical, you know, perspective that's like on, you know, a .gov website to be able to say anything because a study exists? And then the second part of that is if I say something and I link to that study, does that give me any more uh, security or does that make me more liable because I'm now linking to a potential study that says, oh, this is actually good for insomnia or sleep or anxiety or, or COVID, right? And so they think this is like such a hard place to be in where it's like you want more research. Now more research is being done, but I can't even talk about the research without feeling like I'm going to be attacked or or targeted. Yes. I love this conversation. So it really... It really brings up the point of education versus commerce. So if there is a purely educational website, YouTube channel, it's not linking back to where customers can take orders for products. That's kind of verbiage from FDA warning letters. So again, if we're being truly and purely educational and we're not using it, even implied to sell any products, then the authorities are pretty much you know, largely hands-off, right? Education. Now, let's say that we have a commercial website, and this is shown up, I think, at eight FDA CBD-related warning letters this year, where there's been a, a commercial site, the company's selling CBD products, but then on their science section or their education section, they may talk about CBD and COVID studies. Just having that study and that citation, even the URL or the study name on that commercial website where CBD is an ingredient, it's a component in a product sold on that website. That's enough to be an implied claim. Now, the FDA, in my opinion, they're probably not going to go after a company if it's relatively low risk, maybe not even anxiety. But because this was in these examples, it's higher risk, it's COVID. Even talking about ingredient research on that website where you're selling that CBD product was enough to attract the warning letter. So that's, that's one part. The second part is linking to a study. It's not a bad strategy as long as your companies are careful to about how what commentary they add. If it's just a simple to link to a study and there's not a high risk disease where it's in the URL, you know, you shorten it using bit URL or something like that, 
that's not a, that's not a bad idea. But if you were saying, hey, check out these studies on uh, CBD and Alzheimer's, if that commentary was added, that linking to that offsite uh, study doesn't really provide any protection because really the way that authorities look at things is would a reasonable consumer think that you are providing this information for selling the product? And if so, you know, you kind of want to tone it down. So a lot of companies may take the, may take the strategy of simply just linking to studies with no commentary on there, or here's some research that you might be interested in. That's not a strategy that's without risk, but it certainly seems like it mitigates it a little bit. Yeah, that's helpful to understand again in this web that is being spun of, okay, I can say this, I can't say that, I can do this here, but I got to be cautious if I do it there. It's just, uh, it's obviously a lot to take in. And so I'm grateful for this conversation and just for you existing and being so passionate about it because we need people who can try to help make sense of the madness, right? And so I want to turn a little bit to I'm curious if you have any knowledge or understanding, like I think when we think of the FDA or the FTC, it's this big government body. But then when you look at cannabis regulation kind of on a state-to-state basis, you know, you're realizing I just had um, Kim Stuck from LA Consulting. She, former, you know, Colorado regulator, and she was speaking about most states have a very small team of people actually regulating in this side of the industry. So knowing the FDA oversees so many other industries and so many other products and and issues and concerns, like, is there a number? Do we know there's three people who oversee the FDA's, you know, hemp and CBD and cannabinoids program or Maybe there is a dedicated program and it's, you know, kind of more nebulous. I'm curious on their side, how many people are realistically in charge of the program? And then on the brand side, like from an enforcement perspective, I mean, you you highlighted what some of the implications were should they get a warning letter. But I'm curious, like, is it detrimental? Do you notice that the brands who get warning letters, they go out of existence? Like, is it really hard to come back from it? Obviously, if you have to pay out claims and refund people, that could eat up your finances if you made a lot of claims and it's a lot of money that you have to pay out. But some of these warning letters, I don't see them necessarily. Maybe it's more on the FTC versus the FDA side, but you're speaking about some of these uh, animal products. I most recently was kind of reading some of those and it was people who were saying, yes, it's it's a product that you could give to your animal. And I think the issue that I observed was because it's not approved for animal consumption, that's why they got the warning letter, right? It's obviously not them selling the products, but it's that they said it was safe for animal consumption. And that is a whole other industry that needs to be dealt with, et cetera. So I'm just curious, how many regulators and who's actually regulating in these bodies, if we have any understanding? And then on the brand side, receiving these letters, does it mean your business is SOL? How do you bounce back from it? Because like you said, it's kind of ingrained in, in at least, you know, SEO that you now have be, you're now the recipient of a warning letter. I'm just, you know, trying to be wishful thinking, like if you get one, is, is it the end of the world or how do you kind of come back from it? And I guess maybe final point to that too. I heard if you get on their radar, you're always on their radar. So is it true that the brands that get warning letters are more I guess, like ready to be flagged. Yes, indeed. So cut out there, but I'll keep going. Uh, Thumbs up if you could hear me for, okay, I'll keep, I'll keep it on. There we go. Perfect. So well done, Shada. I I like, I like this. So this question is really fun. So when we think about what, if a company gets a warning letter, 
or it's not, it's fun for me to talk about, but it's not, wouldn't be fun if a company got a warning letter. So if a company gets a warning letter, certainly they're on, they're more on the authority's radar. Repeat warning letters can lead to injunction. So it's not the end of the world. If a company gets a warning letter, they should hire legal counsel to help them respond. But I think to your point, Shada, a lot of companies do actually go out of business when they do get warning letters. They kind of ride fast, potentially ride fast and loose. And then they go, they get a warning letter and then they just, they just close down. Um, you know, that's not a very sustainable business strategy, but I think some companies probably play it that way. But if a company gets a warning letter, they can respond, they can work with the FDA. And in the case of some warning letters, for example, the, the recent one that I mentioned, the small herbalist farm, the warning letter Wednesday from today, this was actually a joint FDA and FTC warning letter. So part of this was actually cease and desist, which is an even more, has a lot more teeth than a warning letter that basically bans the company from making unsubstantiated claims related to COVID in this context. If they do, they can be fined around $48,000 per, uh, per occurrence and have to return funds to customers. It has a lot, it has a lot more, um, a lot more reasons why you'd want to avoid a cease and desist. So. Warning letter is not the end of the world, but really the best strategy, of course, is to to avoid them, right? Scan our marketing, make sure we don't have these high-risk words lurking lurking uh, anywhere. And in terms of the number of people, the headcount dedicated at a federal level, I'm not sure to cannabis or hemp cannabinoid regulation. I know that, you know, the head of the Office of Dietary Supplements, Dr. Kara Welch, uh, she's a you know, she, she's a really nice person. I, I like her. I see her at conferences quite often. Uh, she's really interested in continuing to op- continue in the dialogue with the cannabis industry to find a way to promote res- responsible commerce, right? Which really, in the eyes of the FDA, responsible commerce is manufacture your product correctly, label your product correctly, and don't make disease claims. Those are kind of the three foundations here. Now, when we look at states, a lot of these states, in particular on the hemp programs, is they're very, very poorly staffed. For example, Alaska. Uh, Alaska, when they started their hemp CBD registration program, the person that was running that was also the state agronomist. So full-time job, state agronomist. And what he told me was that the hemp program registration was a side house trying to help out. In a lot of these states, it takes weeks to get back at any response just because they're so um, overwhelmed and so poorly staffed, West Virginia, Utah, these are, these are states that probably just have one person, I think in particular on their hemp product registration team. That is so helpful to understand. Obviously, I didn't expect an explicit, you know, there's, there's three people or there's one person in any, you know, federal or state uh, regulatory body, but it is just, you know, I think trying to give some scope and perspective to what we're dealing with. And and I think to your point, it sounds like these regulators want to work with the industry. I think it's smart for them to work with the industry, not to look away from it. So kind of, you know, want to pick your brain in terms of, I mean, we're talking about, you know, we know the FDA has to come up with a final ruling on CBD as a dietary supplement, as safe for food and beverage. And I'm bringing this up because I was just in D.C. with the U.S. Hemp Roundtable on behalf of the Texas Hemp Coalition, which is a local advocacy group that I saw on the board with. And the big push was for 
regulating cannabinoids and specifically getting the senators and representatives to urge the FDA to make a decision. And I think the sentiment was a little bit neutral of like, we don't, we obviously want you to make a decision positively for our industry, but at the same time, we just want you to make a decision and your lack of decision is what is creating even more chaos. And so I just look at it like, this industry is so big, it's not going anywhere, but these regulatory bodies don't really want to touch it. Like, I think it would be great if the FDA came out and said, yep, treat it like a dietary supplement or no, it can't be in food and beverage. I think it would free up a lot of people's aspirations as well as give obviously really clear cut, hey, now this is a dietary supplement. It needs to be treated as such. This is how we regulate dietary supplements. You need to have this on your label. You can't make these claims. And so it's just, it's like, I just find that we're in these conversations where they're like, we don't know enough about it. And I'm like, but it's in the market. You see these products. You can't avoid it. So wouldn't you want to regulate it instead of not talking about it? So I'm just curious from your perspective, from talking to some of these entities, these individuals, is it foolish of us to think that the FDA is going to move anytime soon? Or is that really the what I believe is the inevitable, like they've got to, right? Or are they going to keep just kicking the can down the road? I think that FDA is going to look to Congress, although I believe that it is within FDA's power to to grant um, a, approval, for lack of a better description, of hemp-based cannabinoids. And, and what many of the listeners know is the complexity with hemp cannabinoid regulation is that the preclusion, the drug preclusion rule, which is if it was investigated as a new drug, the drug companies essentially have dibs on it because there's epidiolics investigated. Yep. See, it's a CBD product investigated before. So they say, or so many people say before CBD was marketed as an isolated ingredient, um, you know, not, not in hemp extract form, but as an isolated ingredient that again, the drug companies have dibs on it. So the complexity really is, well, does FDA want to does FDA want to kick the drug companies in the foot or in the back by saying, hey, I know that this is the rules and they're pre- clearly defined rules with the preclusion clauses, um, but we're going to make an exception this time. But keep keep investing in pharmaceutical drugs and we're not going Im- to impact that. So it's, you know, I'm I'm a natural health enthusiast, so you guess what side of the fence I'm on. But it's important to as we all know, it's important to see different perspectives inside. So I don't think the FDA is going to do much anytime soon. So we look to Congress. We look we look to bills such such as HRA forty one that would help define a pathway for CBD or cannabinoids in dietary supplements. I think this is a great it's a great bill. Um, things like, bills like this I think kind of continue to help move the conversation forward. And you mentioned the roundtable. I'm a big fan of hemp, hemp supporter dot com or dot org, I can't recall, but I, I like the work the roundtable's doing, you know, with things like the fly-in that you went to and really helping to educate the, the people in Congress. Usually it's the legislative aides, then it bubbles up to the the senators or the Congress people about the importance of of hemp cannabinoids. And I think one of the core the core parts of this is is we have the American farmer. The American farmers and you know been invested in hemp hemp growth and growing hemp cannabinoids for several years now, but we can't really benefit the hemp, the American farmer that grows hemp cannabinoids until there's a legal pathway. So kind of educating Congress about 
how this is good for America. I know I'm speaking to the choir here, how this is good for America and really good for industry. I think that's kind of how we're going to continue to make change. And then change is going to happen at the congressional level. And then FDA is probably going to get on board. That's just my guess. No, it's very in line with what I observed just doing that fly-in. I have never been to D.C. and have done advocacy work here in Texas, but getting to go be on the ground. And yes, it was talking to a lot of aides and not directly talking to the politicians. And you realize how how politics works, right? And so it was a lot of people even talking to the ag department and they're like, oh, these bills, like the bill you mentioned, 841, they're like, oh, well, yeah, the FDA is probably not going to do anything. So why, like, we, we can't enforce the FDA to move. Like we can't urge the FDA to move was kind of their attitude. And so you're kind of sitting there like, uh, well, it'd be cool if somebody did something, you know? And so trying to get the buy-in from these different parties, these different sides of Congress, of just the process of politics in general was so eye-opening. And also, it is very complex because then we're sort of talking about, you know, first they're like, isn't this ag? (laughs) Now you guys want to talk about cannabinoids? And then cannabinoids isn't just CBD, CBG, CBN. Now you're getting into the THCs. And oh, doesn't that make you high? And well, what's the difference between Delta 8 and Delta 9? And just the the snowball effect. I'm sitting in these meetings and it's just unraveling, unraveling. And it's like, I know it's complex. I know it's not just a great, like, even if the FDA decided that they were going to regulate it, it's not that straightforward for them just to go flip a light switch and to implement regulation or to issue out regulation. It's very, very complex. I know that. And so just trying to obviously like put parameters up so that businesses and operators and also the consumers for who are buying these products, I think that's everybody's concern, consumer safety, of course. So the good actors, we want them to stay in business. The bad actors, we want to get, you know, ushered out because they're not compliant. They're not participating in the regulations. They're not, you know, upholding good labeling manufacturing practices. And it's all because that end consumer is, you know, who's at the detriment when the product doesn't do what it says it's going to do. So it's like, I understand why we're in this predicament, but trying to get, you know, change made or trying to make sense of what the landscape is, is so difficult. So kind of with that said, obviously, I think people need to find you on social media, check out your YouTube, subscribe to your warning letter, Wednesday newsletters, just be a sponge to everything that you're creating. Cause I know you do it out of labor of love and it also is really to help the industry. But if there were, I don't know, I don't want to like, you know, say there's five takeaways or three takeaways, but like, I love action. And so from our conversation, what are kind of like, you know, a couple of things that people listening or watching should like immediately go do? Is it, Go do a search on your, you know, website for, you know, these three words, or is it you need to go, you know, subscribe to this, that, or the other? I'm just curious what you think is the most important thing someone, after hearing all of this, probably having an oh shit moment thinking, I probably said things I shouldn't say and I don't want a warning letter. What is that course of action that someone should go implement? Yes. I'd say step one is to go through all old social media posts and make sure there's not any high-risk words lurking. This includes infographics, hashtags especially. And the FDA and FTC, they're going back several years on company social media posts. So think about a five-year-old tweet, for example. So oftentimes when I'm reviewing uh, companies' compliance, they may have a robust compliance program now, 
But what about what was happening a couple of years ago? Maybe they've gone through a change of ownership or different operations people, different social media managers, right? So step one, go back and clean up old social media posts, scan for high-risk buzzwords. Uh, we talked about a lot of them today, COVID, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, depression. Uh, I review a lot of them on my warning letter Wednesdays. Send me an email. I'm more than happy to send you, you know, the top 10 list or top 20 list or whatever it may be. Number two is on blogs. Um, educational blogs on a commercial website can be considered marketing, even if there's no direct linking, no call to action, no link to a shopping cart, anything like that. So just like social media posts, go back and look at those old blogs. They're probably lurking deep on your company website and they're not doing any good, but they're considered marketing in the eyes of the authorities. So making sure that we don't have risky words on these blogs is, is super important. And then number three is following enforcement trends and acting accordingly. Um, this is one of the reasons why I write Warning Letter Wednesday you know, and make all these YouTube videos so we can kind of we can kind of have that light bulb go off. Oh yeah, I didn't realize I was making this claim that can get me in trouble. Let me adjust my marketing now before I get a warning letter or something worse. All such good words of advice. I look forward to continuing to learn from you. Thank you for taking the time to be on the podcast. I hope everybody just like rushes over to your page, your content, which will be linked below in the show notes for people who are tuning in. And thanks for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate it, Asa. Time flies when you're having fun, Shada. This was a really great conversation. I've really enjoyed talking about these important topics. So, you know, together we can kind of rise the tide. The more that we can share the word about compliance and effective marketing strategies and enforcement trends, the better our industry will be as a whole. So thank you again. Love this episode of To Be Blunt? Be sure to visit theshadatarabi.com slash tobeblunt for more ways to connect. New episodes come out on Mondays. And for more behind the scenes, follow along on Instagram at theshadatarabi.com.